Hey everyone, I'm Marshall. And I'm not Lindsay. What? <laughs> I'm Elliot, Tumble's production assistant. <laughs> so Elliot, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, I think Lindsay's enjoying her summer break, as I hope the rest of our fans are. And today, we're excited to share a special collection of Tumble stories with you. You might remember that we kicked off season eight with Life Lab, which was a five-part series that explores the incredible power of synthetic biology. Synthetic biology is a new technology that could solve some huge problems. But as everyone's favorite superhero's uncle once said, with great power comes great responsibility. Love that line. All right, let's kick off our road trip to learn more about this powerful science. Welcome to Life Lab. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We're kicking off this season with something a little different. This is the first part of Life Lab, our five-part series about how tiny life can change everything. Life Lab will explore the incredible power of a new technology you probably haven't heard of to solve some of the biggest challenges on the planet and beyond. But with great power comes great responsibility. We'll be asking how this technology could or should change our future. That sounds kind of like a lot to do. Uh, where do we even start? Well, let's start in the most obvious place. Cheese. Cheese? That's not obvious. <laughs> You'll see. A few years ago, my friend did something really weird with cheese, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. You were recording a podcast about cheese, and I was swabbing people's belly buttons to sample their microbiome, the bacteria that live inside their belly buttons, so I could make cheese out of it for an art project that I was doing at the time. That's Christina Agapakis, who's a scientist and artist. She's also known as the cheese lady. Wait, so she was making cheese out of the bacteria that live inside people's belly buttons? for an art project? I've seen some weird art projects. That takes the cake. Or <laughs> the cheese. It takes the cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> as weird as it sounds, this science-y art project made Christina kind of famous. It's more rare nowadays that I get called the cheese lady. I think before it was much more sort of my claim to fame. So not like recognized on the street famous, but more like Venn diagram of cheesemongers and scientists famous. Exactly. I've actually known Christina since before she was cheesemonger scientist famous. My best friend from college is one of her best friends from high school, and we met when she was studying to become a biologist. Christina was probably the first person who said the word synthetic biology to me. So what's that have to do with cheese? What does making cheese out of bacteria from the belly button have to do with synthetic biology? That's a very, very good question. Yeah, I feel like I have a lot of good questions about this. Like, what is synthetic biology? I, I really feel like we need to know this before we can get to the belly button cheese. Yum. <laughs> synthetic biology is engineering biology. Okay, so the rules of definitions are that you can't use the words being defined in the definition that is called a circular definition. Oh. <laughs> Try again. Okay, well, I'll get Christina's advice on how to explain synthetic biology. There's probably a lot of ways that you could do that. You could start by talking about DNA, right? So like DNA is, it's the code inside of our cells. 
this code is not so different from the kinds of codes that our computers run on. Inside of a computer, there's a code that sort of tells the computer what to do. And computer programmers can change that code um, and do different things with the computer. Right. So I know a computer code is it's like the language that you use to communicate with a computer. And like it lets you change things on a website or build a new app or a game. Exactly. So imagine doing that for a cell using the language of DNA. You can, as a synthetic biologist, rewrite that code and program it the way that a computer programmer programs a computer. But wait, you're not going to like make a video chat app on a cell, right? It's too tiny. That's true, but tiny life can be very powerful to do other things. Well, so what other things can you program a cell to do? Lots of things. For example, you can make a cell smell. Cell smell. You could sell some smelly cells down by the seashore. <laughs> or some or some celly smells. <laughs> Here's how Christina describes it. I would sort of look at what a cell did and I say like, okay, well, I see that this cell over here can make this kind of smell. In theory, Christina could find the piece of DNA code that was responsible for making that smell. Then she'll copy that code. I can put it into a different cell and then now that cell makes that smell. And so like, that's the sort of basic idea that I can kind of like cut and paste and move around and rewrite the way that a cell works through DNA. That's wild. So it's just like copy and pasting on my laptop. Well, not exactly. Working with biology is much more challenging than working on a computer for reasons we'll get into during the series. But you can copy paste DNA from one living thing into another living thing and build or engineer a new kind of tiny life, synthetic life. Oh, so that's what synthetic biology is. That's the basic idea of synthetic biology. It's engineering biology. It's a powerful new type of technology that can be used across nearly any aspect of life on Earth and beyond. Whoa. I mean, that's really huge. But I, I don't understand how that connects to human cheese because... That's just gross. <laughs> well, Christina was using art and cheese as a way to ask a question about how synthetic biology will shape our future. What if technology looked more like cheese than it looked like iPhones is kind of the question that we were asking. Um, if technology looked more like cheese than iPhones, you definitely wouldn't want to keep that in your pocket. <laughs> or like put it next to your ear. Like if you had to text on cheese, it sounds slimy. <laughs> but seriously, synthetic biology will change the way we think about what technology is. I think synthetic biologists want to make technology out of biology. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's going to look more like cheese. It's going to smell weird. It's going to be alive. Um, and we're going to engineer that to make different kinds of food or different kinds of medicines or different kinds of materials and, and, and things around us. Using DNA in factories made out of cells, synthetic biology could engineer the world around us. Things made from biology instead of chemistry. And so that's what technology might start to look like soon, more like cheese. But what, what does that really mean? Like more techie cheese, like cheese startups, tech cheese bros? <laughs> 
we'll dig into the startling world of cheese tech and reveal a surprising truth about cheese after this quick break. All right, we're back. So at the risk of sounding cheesy, <laughs> this explanation sounds like a single slice of what synthetic biology <laughs> is. And I still have so many more questions. Yeah, there's an entire cheese board of what synthetic biology means and could be. Like you got your hard cheese, your soft cheese, and then there's the cheeses made with all different kinds of milk. You're really getting the hang of this cheese metaphor, which we deeply committed to. <laughs> but just like cheese, synthetic biology is used for more than one type of product with more than one type of method. But get this. Synthetic biology is already being used to make most cheeses. Wait, really? Yeah, cheese is made with an important ingredient called rennet, but it's not found in our belly buttons. It's found in the lining of calves' stomachs. Wait, calves like young cows? Yes. We're not going to get into how people discovered this inside the stomachs of young cows, but... Rennet starts the chemical reaction that helps milk solidify into curds of cheese. I have to say, rennet sounds kind of gross and also really not great for the cows. I agree. So back in the 1980s, scientists decided to try to make rennet not from cows. So they discovered the molecules in rennet that were key to that curdling chemical reaction. Next, they found the right code of DNA, and just like Christina described, they copied and pasted it back into a bacteria cell. Wow. So then that cell started pumping out these rennet molecules, identical to the molecules found in the animal rennet. Yeah, so it's basically like a, like a vegan rennet. But the cheese isn't vegan, though. That's still made with animal milk, right? Yeah, right. And so for decades, we've actually been eating cheese thanks to synthetic biology. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, there's lots of other examples about how synthetic biology is already a part of our lives, in our food, in our medicine, and the things we buy. I mean, I've heard of foods that have been genetically modified or had their DNA changed, and I know people have a lot of different ideas about whether that's good or bad. Yes, definitely, and we'll talk about that throughout this series. But first, we got to find out how we got to this point. And to do that, I turned to one of the pioneers of synthetic biology. Her name is Chris Prather, and she's a synthetic biologist at MIT. It turns out I was working in synthetic biology before it was called synthetic biology. How could you work in synthetic biology before it has a name? Seems like you need a name first. <laughs> well, new fields of science and engineering take many, many years of development before they get a proper name. It didn't arise from nothingness. So it wasn't just like a piece of DNA landed on somebody's head and they were like, Eureka, I have an idea for a new kind of science. <laughs> it will involve DNA. <laughs> no, it came from many different people coming together with similar ideas. And a lot of what people in our field will talk about is whether or not synthetic biology is really revolutionary or is it evolutionary. So what does that mean? Is it something that is radically, radically different, something you've never, ever seen before? Or is it something that represents the thing that you expect to come next? Chris believes it was the second one. 
the next step of a scientific evolution, which began with a discovery that happened just a year after Chris was born. Yeah, I go back to 1973. That's when two scientists managed to put DNA from one cell into another and create the first genetically modified organism. It showed that you could take DNA from two different sources, put it back together, physically connect it back together, kind of like cutting and pasting, and have it work. Oh, cutting and pasting, like Christina mentioned. Yes, this was the first time that ever happened. It was a turning point from understanding the science of DNA to engineering it. At that point in time, we know the structure of DNA. We know that DNA carries the instructions for how biology is supposed to behave or how biology is going to function and work and all those kinds of things, right? Biologists had figured out how DNA's two twisted strands fit together. It's known as the double helix. DNA is a sequence of letters, but it has a partner. So think about it as being at a dance, and based on who you are, you're only allowed to dance with one person. The DNA dance features only two types of pairs dancing. You have A's, G's, C's, and T's. The G's and C's always have to dance together. The A's and T's always have to dance together. Okay, I, I've heard about these letters before, but I never understood what they stood for. It's the first letter of different chemical bases, and honestly, they're pretty hard to pronounce. All right, well, I mean, I guess I'm fine with A, G, C, and T. We don't need to make podcasting any harder than it already is. There are about a million of these base pairs in any given strand of DNA. And these pairs form groups called sequences. They make up what I like to call the line dance of life. So you have one sequence that has A, G, C's, and T's paired with another sequence that has A, G, C's, and T's. This line dance is very, very long. For example, in our own DNA, there are about three billion of these dancing pairs. Wait, three billion? I didn't know I had three billion of anything. You do, and it's repeated in all of the bajillion cells in your body. <laughs> I gotta say, that's just a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's big numbers. Did you know we're made of a lot of stuff, and it's pretty much all wet? <laughs> this long line of dancing pairs make up the twisty strands of DNA. These are the words and sentences in the instruction manual for the cell. And to bring it all back to 1973, these scientists wrote a new section of the manual by taking DNA apart and putting in a section of DNA from another bacteria. It's like remodeling the car engine to put it together in a new way and still have it function. That represented a tremendous achievement that was the start of genetic engineering. Wow, so, so what does that even mean? It means more cheese, of course. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Inventions like the artificial rennet we described earlier became possible. It really just changed how we thought about what we could do with biology and what we could do with DNA. I mean, what, what more could you do? This already seems like a lot of cheese. <laughs> it doesn't have to be just cheese, Marshall. We could do much more. So the next few decades after the 70s just sped up how much we could learn about DNA and how we could make it ourselves. And that's where synthetic biology, or engineering biology, comes in. Oh wait, what, what's it mean to engineer biology? 
It's using the science of biology and DNA to change up what an organism can do or to make new organisms altogether, which is a bit different from what scientists do. If you talk to scientists, then their driver is what question am I trying to answer, right? If you talk to engineers, their driver is what problem am I trying to solve? Huh. So, so I guess it's gone from like a process of scientific discovery to a process of problem solving. Exactly. That's the difference between science and engineering. But synthetic biology kind of mix and mashes science and engineering together in challenging ways. Chris puts it like this. If I build a bookcase and I come back next week, it's still going to be a bookcase. If I come back 20 years from now, it's still going to be a bookcase. If I build a bacteria and I keep growing it over and over and over again, five years from now, it's not the same bacteria anymore. Really? That, that sounds really tricky. And potentially risky. Engineering with biology is engineering new forms of life. And life evolves. Humans can't change that. It raises all sorts of concerns and questions about what is the role of technology. And just because we can be doing it, should we be doing it? And, and what does it mean to make those choices? And how do we make those choices? These are all really, really critically important issues. That does sound really important. So how do we make these choices? And where do we go from here? That's what we'll find out in Life Lab. In this series, we will explore the incredible potential of synthetic biology to help solve some of the biggest problems we face as humanity. And we'll be asking the important questions about how we decide, how it shapes our future. And that's where you come in. Me? I get to decide the future? Finally, someone's asking me. <laughs> no, no, not you. Oh. <laughs> I'm asking our listeners. Because what comes out of synthetic biology could change the world you're growing up in. Here's Christina Agapakis, the human cheese lady, again. I think it's important for kids to know about science and technology because it is part of how we live that you should know and you should be part of, too. So get ready to be a part of it and come along with us on the next episode of Life Lab, when we'll be packing our bags for Mars. When you're two years from any other human habitation, when there are no plants and no animals and water is hard to come by, uh, you're on your own. And so either you bring it all with you, which is incredibly expensive and risky because you don't know everything that you need, or you use biology to make things on demand, to reproduce the services of Earth, to create things as you need them. That's next week on Life Lab. Thanks to Dr. Christina Agapakis, head of the Ginkgo Studio at Ginkgo Bioworks, and Dr. Cristela Jones Prather, the Arthur D. Little Professor of Chemical Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the Executive Officer of Chemical Engineering. LifeLab is supported by the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, a nonprofit committed to educating the next generation 
in building a community dedicated to solving big challenges with engineering biology with funding from the National Science Foundation under award number 2116166. Special thanks to Emily Orend and India Hook Barnard. You can find a transcript and other educational materials about this episode on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. On our Patreon, we have two bonus interviews for you this week, featuring both Christina and Chris. They're available to Tumble patrons who pledge just a dollar or more a month on patreon.com slash tumblepodcasts. Our interns on this project are Elliot Hajaj and Grace Ingram. Eric Kuhn is our engineer and mixer. Sarah Robertson-Lentz edited this series and designed our episode art. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I did all the scoring and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for part two of Life Lab. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. This is the second part of Life Lab, our five-part series about how tiny life can change everything. Last time on Life Lab, we heard about how a new field called synthetic biology came to be and where it could be going. If you haven't heard it yet, you probably should go back and listen to it before this episode. Because in this episode, we're bringing Life Lab to Mars. Wait, is there life on Mars? The question is, should we bring our life there? In this episode, we'll be making a packing list for the Red Planet. Before we get to Mars, there's one more thing I keep thinking about that we heard in the last episode. Which is? Well, remember how Chris Prather, the synthetic biologist from MIT, defined the difference between scientists and engineers? If you talk to scientists, then their driver is, what question am I trying to answer, right? If you talk to engineers, their driver is, what problem am I trying to solve? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was an interesting way to put it. So, like, the goal of science is to answer questions, and the goal of engineering is to solve problems. They're different. But I keep wondering, if synthetic biology is about solving problems with biology, how do you choose which problems to solve with biology? Huh. I don't know. Me either. So that's why I wanted to start asking the question with an example of a big, nearly impossible problem. Imagine sending, you know, a, a small village of eight astronauts to Mars. That's Adam Arkin. He's a bioengineer, and this is the problem he's working on. A problem in the future. A future where humans could live on Mars. It takes almost two years sometimes to get to Mars and to get back again. And so you, if you're gonna stay there for some period of time, you're on an inhospitable planet, very far from home, with almost none of the services to get you there. Okay, I mean, I think I'm seeing what the problem is. It's hard to live without life. Now, were you on the moon, Amazon claims it can deliver to the moon. You can have Amazon Prime for the moon, right? <laughs> and so you don't have to bring a lot of stuff with you because it can be sent to you when you need it. But when you're two years from any other human habitation, when there are no plants, 
and no animals and water is hard to come by, uh, you're on your own. And so either you bring it all with you, which is incredibly expensive and risky because you don't know everything that you need, or you use biology to make things on demand, to reproduce the services of Earth, to create things as you need them. Whoa. So he wants to use synthetic biology to supply a small Martian village of astronauts, which that seems like really ambitious. It does. We'll figure out how Adam plans to make it happen after we take this short break. You know, I talked to a lot of synthetic biologists for this series, and Adam Arkin was the one who came up with the shortest definition of what they do. We make organisms that make new things. I love it. It's brief, to the point. You put it on a t-shirt, and then I would buy that t-shirt. You could market the t-shirt very easily. (laughs) (laughs) So Adam's making organisms to solve the problem of living on a planet without life. And he's broken that huge challenge down into three smaller but still significant problems. Let's just take three simple categories. So you have food, you have medicine, and you have you know, materials to like make your house, for example, and to make the tools and things you need. First, let's talk about food. Adam knows he can't feed eight people the same thing every day. They'll get bored of it. So we need to pack the ability to grow food of various sorts. Now that food has to be adapted to space, grow in very confined areas with very specific light sources. So a Mars garden. Like an olive garden, but on Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of bottomless pasta bowls, they have bottomless dust bowls. Would you like more dust? We have plenty. (laughs) Yeah. um, For the Mars garden, you can't just get some regular seeds from the regular garden store. They'll have to be engineered for a Martian habitat and then supercharged for astronauts. All the better if that food has been functionally modified. Well, wait, what what does that mean? It means that the food is packed with more than just the normal nutrients. For example, your potatoes could contain tiny molecules that help keep your bones strong in Mars' low-gravity environment. So you can get more nutrition from it. And even better if it's providing things that we know you need medically. And that brings us to the second category, medicine. How will astronauts get all the medicine they need for all their time on Mars? Everybody gets headaches. Everybody gets joint aches. We know you're going to need things like aspirin or Tylenol. I'm assuming you can't just get, like, one of those massive bottles that they have at the, like, discount stores and take them on the spaceship. No. <laughs> <laughs> And astronauts could get sick with all sorts of different illnesses on Mars. But you couldn't really pack for all the possibilities. So we need organisms that can produce these molecules on demand. Plants are one of them. So like you go to a greenhouse instead of a drugstore. Yep. And there's two ways to make that happen. You can imagine making it in the plant so that you can extract it and make pills out of it. Or you can have the plant be edible. So you can eat the plant and get the drug directly. Wait, so you'd be making just like a medicine plant? Not not medicinal, like like a plant that's just medicine. (laughs) Yes, you could chow down on a leaf of aspirin. And I don't know how that would taste. (laughs) I I guess however you wanted to, right? (laughs) That's crazy. 
it's not just food that can do double duty. So we also make bacteria that are photosynthetic and can reuse carbon dioxide and things like that that clean your air. But they'll also make these drugs for use. So he's trying to make bacteria that will make pills and clean air. Yes, it is really wild. And now we're on to the last category on Adam's packing list, the building materials. Then we have other bacteria that make plastic for us, from which you can make tools, work surfaces, you can patch habitats with it. Okay, so he's trying to do bacteria that makes pills, cleans air, and he wants to make a little army of plastic-making bacteria that's busy building the materials for your Martian home. Yes. And the plan is, is that all of this tiny life settlement gets set up without the astronauts themselves. So a lot of this would be sent to Mars before any astronaut arrives. It would be robotic. Adam told me that this Martian village survival kit would be rocketed out to the red planet, kind of like a rover. So when the astronauts arrived, a lot of things were already booted and operating. Well, that's insane. It can just set itself up? That's the idea. It's the ultimate off-grid technology. In fact, Adam says we could easily convert this Martian village system to benefit Earthlings still on our planet. This whole thing fits in something the size of your backyard. So you can imagine feeding two or three families, providing resources for them here on Earth with nothing but the sun and the atmosphere and water and your own household waste. I think that's a huge benefit to mankind. Okay, so we could all use this crazy Martian technology, but right in our backyards. Yes. And, you know, a lot of technology developed for space missions has ended up being used on Earth. Like, did you know the Dust Buster was first designed in order to collect moon dust? (laughs) Really? (laughs) I guess, like, if it can get dust on the moon, then it can definitely get those little crumbly things that are in the couch. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But getting back to Mars, what Adam just laid out is a synthetic biology solution to supporting astronauts on Mars. They'll use the power of DNA to convert bacteria and plants into tiny factories that make supplies on demand. But when it comes to how this would actually work in real life, there are some kinks to work out. Take food, for example. And it's actually not entirely clear (laughs) how we ensure that there's always food at all times and it always grows with no error. Wait, it's not clear how they make sure the astronauts always have food? See, that sounds important to me. (laughs) Don't know about you. (laughs) You want to have food all the time, like every day, right? (laughs) I mean, around two or three times, sure. (laughs) So... There's not exactly a grocery store that you can go to if your crops fail. So making sure there's no bad growing season is extremely, extremely important. Especially when no one's ever grown a plant on Mars before. I mean, how do we even know how that works? Yeah, and that's not all. Moving on to medicines, these pills or pill plants have to be as good as what you'll get on Earth at the pharmacy. Our pills are made in big factories with lots of tests, making sure they don't accidentally harm you. How do you make machines that do that? And we kind of know how, but not enough to guarantee it. And that needs to be solved by the time we go to Mars. All right. So 
that doesn't sound to me like it's just like a little kink in the plan that needs to be worked out. It sounds like it's actually like a really huge problem that could mean life or death for an astronaut. Yes. And that puts a lot of serious responsibility on Adam and his team. We have to make sure that we just don't cause any problems. Okay, but how do scientists know if what they're going to do will cause problems? The short answer is that they don't. And biology is complicated. And because it's complicated, we have to be very careful when we use it. (laughs) Well, how do you make sure you're being careful? Well, Adam is constantly thinking about what could happen. We figure out for every step what could go wrong. And we then, for every technology that is about that risk, we assess how can it go wrong? How can it be fixed? What happens if it can't? Do we have a backup technology? Sounds like they're trying to stop things from going wrong. Definitely. But beyond the technology, there's bigger questions to ask about how we bring ourselves and brand new biology to another planet. We are a people about to embark into an unknown location and plant our flag out there. And we are taking a privilege to go to another planet and assert our biology and our dominance in that world. Wow, that's a really interesting question that asks if we even have the right to live on Mars at all. Is it okay to colonize another planet, even if no life exists there? That is an excellent question. And there's an even bigger one behind it. There's a larger question about what is our right in terms of getting out into the world. And there's two things to consider here. One is there's a huge amount of cost for us to go out there. This costs the world a lot of money. These are billions upon trillions of dollars that could be spent elsewhere uh, to help our people. And we have to justify that in some way. We think about, is it worth that cost for the benefit we'll deliver to our people back on Earth when we do this? It's an ethical statement we're trying to make. An ethical statement means, is this a good decision to make? How does going to Mars and bringing our new biology with us measure up to what we think is right and wrong? Meaning, why do we think this is a problem that we should even put effort into solving? Exactly. There are no right or wrong answers. Ethics are about what you believe in and what you value. We all believe in and value different things, so we can all think through the same questions with the same information and come to different answers. Well, I mean, what does Adam think? What's his answer to that question? Honestly, I'm a technologist uh, and a scientist, and I'm most concerned with the fact that we are clean. (laughs) That is, we do no harm, that we don't contaminate the planet. Basically, he has a job to do, and he wants to do it well. He believes that synthetic biology can be contained and not affect Mars in a bad way. And he thinks it's possible to make it trustworthy enough to support his small village of astronauts. I want to make sure that we are doing the job that everyone expects us to do and nothing more. That's my main concern. But he admits that not everyone would agree with his job. Now, going to Mars as a people, as a human race, as a human animal, is debatable, but I can't imagine not wanting to explore. I can't imagine us as a species wanting to cut ourselves off from the universe we live in. Okay, so he does think we should go. He definitely has a case for it. I think that going to Mars is an immense 
undertaking that will increase our knowledge by leaps and bounds. It's a, it, just an amazing thing. But it could be a place for us to live one day. And I'm not sure we're going to do that, but not knowing if we could seems like a mistake. That sounds like a pretty compelling argument. I'm not sure what to think about it, though. Me either. On one hand, I'm like, if we need to solve problems on Earth, why don't we just do that and not have to figure out the part of how do we get these things to Mars? <laughs> yeah, but then you don't get to go explore space, which, I don't know, is like, that's really cool, a good enough reason. <laughs> we could go back and forth on this forever. But at some point, we have to decide what to do. So how do we do that? That's what we're going to find out in our next episode. We'll be heading to the home of a Harvard professor and his eight-year-old daughter. And this father-daughter team is going to attempt the impossible to figure out how we make good decisions about science together. Should we do this or should we not do this? Or I'm kind of in the middle. I don't know which one we should do. Maybe we should, but very carefully. <laughs> or maybe we shouldn't. Very carefully. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's next week on Life Lab. Thanks to Dr. Adam Arkin, professor of bioengineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He's also the director of CUBES, which stands for the Center for the Utilization of Biological Engineering in Space. Good acronym. Yes. LifeLab is supported by the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, a nonprofit committed to educating the next generation and building a community dedicated to solving big challenges with engineering biology with funding from the National Science Foundation under award number 2116166. Special thanks to Emily Orend in India, Hook Barnard. You can find a transcript and other educational materials about this episode on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. Learn more about life in space on our bonus interview with Adam Arkin. It's available to Tumble patrons who pledge just a dollar or more a month on patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Our interns on this project are Elliot Hajaj and Grace Ingram. Eric Kuhn is our engineer and mixer. Sarah Robertson-Lentz edited the series and designed the episode art. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote this episode. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I did all the scoring and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for part three of Life Lab. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. This is the third part of Life Lab, our five-part series about how tiny life can change the world. In the last episode, we started packing for Mars, but planning the trip brought up some difficult questions. You should listen to that episode if you haven't already to know what we're talking about. Especially because this led us to the question we'll be attempting to answer today. How do we make the decisions that are going to affect our future as humans? All right, Marshall, we're kind of stuck on this Mars question. How can we solve it?
Well, it's clear that we disagree, and one of us is right, and one of us is wrong. Probably I'm the right one. (laughs) I mean, I disagree about that, too. But ultimately, it's not us who gets to decide whether we should go to Mars. I don't know. I've got a pretty major space-traveling operation going with the squirrels in our attic. (laughs) We've decided we're going. All right, well, you and your team of squirrel astronauts can do what you will. When it comes to realistic visions of getting to Mars, the decision for humanity to settle another planet could involve literally the entire world. We have to think about how do we make sure that everybody is heard. That's Adam Arkin from our last episode, right? Yes, and he agrees that our future in space is not just up to scientists and astronauts. How do we make sure there are diverse people and diverse minds and diverse nations are taken into account as we go and establish dominance out in space? Huh. So he's saying that this shouldn't be a competition to see who can get their flag on Mars first. Exactly. It shouldn't be like the race that we did to the moon. It should be a planet-wide decision. (laughs) Are you saying we should plan it for the whole planet? Yes. We should plan the planet planning planet. (laughs) Yes, but how to make that plan is still to be decided. I don't think we've solved that problem. I think we've discussed it. I think it's been surfaced, but I don't think we've solved it yet. (laughs) And that's something for you guys all to be involved with. You guys, like me, you, and the crack team of squirrel astronauts in our attic. I didn't know we were all invited to join the Intergalactic Council. I'm pretty sure he's not talking about me, you, and the squirrels alone. He's (laughs) saying our listeners could get involved with deciding if and how humans live on Mars. Wow. Really? That's, That's a huge responsibility. Right? And that got me thinking, not just about Mars, but about synthetic biology. Who gets to decide how we use it in the future? And how do you even get to decide who gets to decide? Well, Adam kind of left that up in the air. So I set aside the Mars problem, packed up my recording gear, and went to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we'll be there right after this short break. Do you want more Tumble stories? How about ad-free episodes? Become a Tumble subscriber on Spotify for just 99 cents a month or become a patron on Patreon. You'll get access to ad-free episodes, plus a bonus interview extra every two weeks. This seems like a pretty sweet deal to me, and I'm not just saying that because I happen to make these interview extras. If you want to help support Tumble and become a patron or Spotify subscriber, go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast, or just tap one of the locked episodes on our Spotify feed and click get access. Ooh, is that the sound of uh, Harvard-educated birds? Yes. Yes, it is. Hello. Sam Weiss Evans greeted me at the door in front of a steep set of steps leading to his family's apartment. Sorry, the stairs are so steep. <laughs> Sam's not a synthetic biologist, but he works with them to help decide which technology is created and if it should be used in the real world. So, like, in the future, should we use synthetic biology to solve problems, or should we not? Exactly. So Sam had invited me over to demonstrate how to think through these tough decisions with the help of a very special guest, his eight-year-old daughter. 
So, do you like to be called Isabelle or Izzy? Izzy. Izzy, okay. They're going to be talking about a problem that might be solved by synthetic biology, getting rid of a deadly disease called malaria. I set Izzy and Sam up with microphones on their dining room table and got ready to listen to the conversation unfold. Ready to get started? Sure, yeah. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Okay. Have you ever heard of malaria? Yes. What do you What do you know about it? Anything? I know that it's passed by mosquitoes. Yeah. So when the mosquito bites you, then you might get sick. Wait, uh, can I butt in here? Yeah, we have control of the audio. You can just, like, press stop and start on the tape. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, um, so why is malaria an issue we're talking about here? It kills hundreds of thousands of people each year, and it's a big problem in some parts of the world. Ugh, yeah, mosquitoes are definitely the worst. But where does synthetic biology come in with this? We're getting to it. Let's get back to the conversation. So people have been coming up with all kinds of ideas. Well, how do we address this problem of malaria? But there's another idea that, that they're working on right now, which is to change the mosquito. How do you change a mosquito? Right? It's kind of a weird idea. Okay. I mean, that is a weird idea. So how do you change a mosquito? This is where synthetic biology comes in. The mosquito like, is a, a living being. And that living being has, you could think of it like code, like code in their body that tells them you're going to be this kind of being, you're going to be this kind of animal, and you're going to grow one head and not two, and you're going to grow wings, and you really like blood. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so he's either talking about mosquito DNA or vampire DNA. <laughs> He's definitely talking about mosquitoes here, because mosquito DNA has all the instructions for how to be a mosquito. But in some species, it also has the instructions that let mosquitoes carry the malaria virus and pass it on to people. Those sound like some pretty bad instructions. Can we tear up that manual, maybe? Well, let's hear more about this idea from Sam. The one idea might be, maybe we don't want the mosquitoes to transmit malaria, or... Maybe we just don't need the mosquito anymore. So what if we change the mosquito so that when the mosquitoes try to have babies, they can't have babies anymore? Mm -hmm. And so you can, like, just take the mosquitoes out of the environment. Is this a good idea? Okay, so let's pause here for a moment. Sam's just described a big idea to Izzy. That's changing the mosquito's DNA to prevent female mosquitoes from being able to have babies or reproduce. If they can't reproduce, the species will die out. No mosquito babies means no mosquitoes ever again, which means no malaria. So listeners, here's your chance to think about Sam's question yourself. Is this a good idea? That's a tough one. So we need to think about whether it's a good idea or not, and then why or why not? Yeah, take a few moments to think about it, or you can even pause the podcast to discuss it. Then we'll hear Izzy's answer. Okay, now that we've all thought about it, what, what did Izzy say? No, because bats eat mosquitoes, and if there's no mosquitoes, then the bats can't eat mosquitoes. So they'll die out, and the ones that eat the bats who will die out 
and the ones that eat the animals who eat the bats or die on it go like that until it's the top of the food chain where nothing can eat it, and then they'll just die on it and there'll be nothing left. It's true. That's so true. Yeah. So as much as we humans really hate mosquitoes and would love for them to be gone forever, I guess Izzy did just point out that they are pretty important to bats. It's true, bats play an important role in the food chain, but maybe not all of our listeners had the same reason for saying no to changing mosquitoes as Izzy did. Or maybe they think there are other important reasons to say yes. Oh, we've got another problem here. <laughs> like, do we have to get everybody in the world to agree which direction science should go before anybody does anything? Mm, no. No. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Yeah, because it would be really, really hard to get every single person in the world because you can't do that. You have to say it really, 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 really fast in a <laughs> second. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Izzy's got a really good point here. And also, people can change their minds sometimes. So is it even possible to make a good decision about science? Like, maybe we should just go with what the squirrels want to do, and that would be just as good. <laughs> Hold on. These squirrels in the attic aren't the answer to everything. I'm not going to tell them you said that. <laughs> maybe this is a good time to step away from Sam and Izzy's dining room table for a moment and press pause on the conversation. So after my visit, I called Sam to explain a little bit more about where he was going with this. What I was trying to do in my conversation with Izzy was to show that the kids who are listening to the podcast can really have a role in saying, hey, science, I've got a perspective on the world that matters and that should be included in your visions of what a good future looks like. So kids' opinions really matter. Absolutely. Like, think about it. When there's a decision that affects you, whether it's at your home or at school or in your community, you want your opinion to be heard, right? That's what makes things feel fair. It's the same with science. Making decisions about science is making decisions about life. So what does Sam mean by that? Well, he's saying that even though science might have this feeling of being separate from normal life, it's really just a bunch of humans trying to work through things. We too often think that there is some like good answer in the world of science that is objective. But what I'm trying to say is in a lot of these questions, it is very much a human process. Like doing science is very much a human process. Well, so let me get this straight. He's saying that scientists aren't all superhuman geniuses who can tell us what's right and wrong. Yes, scientists, they're just like us. And while they do have the special ability to do research and build technologies, it doesn't mean that they know inherently what's good or bad for everyone. That's something we have to think about. For me, it always makes me ask for whom. Like, is, this is a good idea for whom? This is a bad idea for whom? So like a decision might seem awesome for me, but it has really bad consequences for somebody else. Yeah, it could. So to make a good decision, you have to figure out who might be affected by it. Well, so how do you do that? So Sam gave me an example from his own work. He told me about the time he worked with a group of scientists who were considering changing mosquito DNA to get rid of malaria on a small Caribbean island. St. John's, which is the island we were looking on, 
50% of the island is a national park. The scientists started a conversation with the St. John's National Park Service about maybe releasing these modified mosquitoes in the park. They can just do whatever they want on their section of the island, which is half the island. So we could have just worked with them, released it on the, you know, in the park, and of course it would go outside of the park. It's true. Mosquitoes really have no respect for property lines. <laughs> so they could have just had the park rangers, like, give them the thumbs up, but the rest of the island never would have had a say. Well, that doesn't seem particularly fair. But I was saying, you know, is that okay? And the scientists were like, we don't think that that's okay. And I was like, okay, we'll go talk to somebody else. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are people who actually live there year round, right? Okay, go talk to those people. And, and so they really got a sense of the complexity of the local community. The modified mosquito debate is still going on in many parts of the world, involving scientists, governments, and local communities. It's a long process in each place. In the case of St. John's, Sam said that the scientists didn't take their project further, but they learned something important in the process. The point of the whole exercise for me with them was, was saying, you think you want to make this technology because you think it'll solve a problem in the world. But what is the problem that, that you're trying to solve and how do other people see that problem? So I guess on an island, it seems a little easier to talk to all the people who would be impacted by these decisions because there's fewer of them and it's like harder for them to get away. But how does that work when it involves like a whole country or a whole planet, like going to Mars? Will people ever agree about that? So even though you can't talk to everyone in the world, like Izzy said, scientists can talk to more people and get more opinions, including kids. And that's what science needs right now. It needs much more involvement in the processes of making decisions. And the respect for the outcome of that process will be a very different science as well as a different society. Okay, through the magic of audio, let's now transport ourselves back to Sam and Izzy's dining room table as we wrap up our conversation. So how did you feel about that conversation? I liked it. I like the bit where it's also, should we? Yeah, like, should we do this or should we not do this? Or I'm kind of in the middle. I don't know which one we should do. Yeah, or maybe we should, but... Very carefully. <laughs> or maybe we shouldn't, but very carefully. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Okay, so we're back in the safety of our own studio. No genetically modified mosquitoes here, just the squirrels. So where do we go from here? What's next on our magical audio field trip? Well, in the next episode, we are going to talk more about making these science decisions very carefully as we explore the future of something you're probably touching right now, your clothes. It's actually interesting because fashion is one of the last places as scientists or engineers we think to innovate. We'll talk to a scientist who's making new clothing materials out of some pretty unexpected biology. Have you ever been bitten by a spider? Yes, and I do not have superpowers yet. Wow, that sounds bizarre. Are the spiders, like, manning the machines? <laughs> we'll find out next time as we explore synthetic biology in fashion.
Thanks to Sam Weiss-Evans, Senior Research Fellow at the Program on Science, Technology, and Society at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Izzy Weiss-Evans. In fact, thanks to the whole family for letting me take over the dining table for an afternoon. We also heard from Chris Prather at MIT and Adam Arkin from UC Berkeley in this episode. LifeLab is supported by the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, a nonprofit committed to educating the next generation and building a community dedicated to solving big challenges with engineering biology with funding from the National Science Foundation under award number 2116166. Special thanks to Emily Orend and India Hook Barnard. You can find a transcript and other educational materials about this episode on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. Learn more about how Sam thinks about synthetic biology in our special bonus interview episode. It's available to Tumble patrons who pledge just a dollar or more a month on patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Our interns on this project are Elliot Hajaj and Grace Ingram. Eric Kuhn is our engineer and mixer. Sarah Robertson-Lentz edited this series and designed the episode art. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I did all the scoring and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for part four of Life Lab. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. This is part four of Life Lab, our five-part series about how tiny life can change the world. In our last episode, we sat in on a conversation between a dad and his eight-year-old daughter as they figured out how to make good decisions about synthetic biology. It gave us some ways to think through some tough questions. You should listen to that episode if you haven't already. Now, we're about to discover the most trend-setting, future-thinking, avant-garde, next, 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 next season's fashion, all made with synthetic biology. Marshall, I can't believe it's already our fourth episode of Life Lab. I know, it's really flown by. It's amazing how quick four weeks can be. (laughs) I feel like we've been on a whirlwind tour of synthetic biology. We've seen its beginnings, we've taken it on an imaginary trip to Mars, and seen how it could make disease disappear. And you can't forget the cheese part. How could I? (laughs) But now we're close to the finale, so we've got to get dressed and ready for it in synthetic biology fashion. Ooh, glam time. So to understand how engineering can turn biology into clothing, I turned to Dan Widmeyer, the head of Bolt Threads, one of the leading companies using synthetic biology to make materials for fashion. Did you ever think you'll be like working in a fashion job when you were growing up, when you were a kid? 0.0% probability. No, absolutely not. It's actually interesting because it's, it's fashion is one of the last places as scientists or engineers we think to innovate. Dan now works with famous fashion designers and brands. But like all fashion greats, he came from humble beginnings as a scientist working in a lab. And the thing I worked on was how spiders make their silk. Wait, like 
spider silk for webs? Yes. Dan thought spider silk was just the most incredible material and far better than the silk we use today. So he and two friends started Bolt Threads to see if they could make spider silk for the things we wear every day. Me and my co-founder, David, would wander around the Bay Area and collect live spiders and put them in cages. And uh, I would keep them in my 350-square-foot apartment with my wife, who was not particularly happy with the fact that we had, I don't know, 30 to 50 spiders living on the dresser at all times. Oh, my goodness. Spiders, science, a small apartment. How could this not go wrong? Sounds like a twist on Spider-Man, except they escape and start their own clothing company. (laughs) (laughs) I know. When I talked to Dan over Zoom, he looked like a regular scientist-turned-CEO, not a scientist-turned-superhero. But I had to ask, have you ever been bitten by a spider? Yes, and I do not have superpowers yet. (laughs) If I look into the canon of Stan Lee's Spider-Man, you know, it's the combination of radiation and spiders, and we've only had spiders. You know, I've not been bit as much as I thought I would when we started working with spiders. I mean, I guess not everyone gets into spiders to gain spidey senses. Yeah, some people just think spiders are super cool and interesting. We wanted to know what the different silks were that different spiders make, because an individual spider makes six or seven different kinds of silk. Wait, he just said one spider makes six or seven different kinds of silk? Like, I thought they just made the, like, one web kind. I know. That's what I thought, too. But their bodies actually contain little silk factories. Like, imagine their butts holding tiny spools of silk thread. (laughs) I've got the image. I'm going to (laughs) admit it's not a pleasant one. And the silks have different properties. Like, some are super strong, some are super stretchy, like rubber. In fact, spider silk is five times as strong as steel. If steel was as thin as a thread of silk. That's incredible. You think of silk as being soft, but this makes it sound like a really tough fabric. It combines both beauty and brawn. But while humans have managed to work with silkworms to make beautiful clothes from their cocoons, spider silk hasn't been quite so easy to work with. An individual spider has maybe 50 milligrams, so 50 thousandths of a gram of silk in there. And your average shirt weighs, you know, 200 grams, something like that. Like, that'd be a lot of spiders. So can we find a better way to make the same thing the spider makes? And that's where we go to synthetic biology. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense to me because a spider silk farm with, like, 7,000 spiders in it. Thousands and thousands of spiders. (laughs) People actually have nightmares about that, I'm pretty sure. It's definitely the setting for a horror film. So... How can we get spider silk without the creepy spiders? What we'll often do is copy, in the case of the silk, copy the DNA, the instruction set for making spider silk protein, out of those cells from the spider and put them in another cell. There's that copy-paste method again. Bolt Threads puts the spider silk DNA into brewer's yeast, which is the same stuff that brewers use to make beer. And then we grow it in big fermentation tanks. So instead of beer coming out of those big tanks, you get the stuff that makes spider silk. Wait, so like it's like a giant soupy puddle? (laughs) How How do you get the threads? Well, it's like a yeasty molecular mix, and it takes a lot of steps until you're able to make clothes out of the stuff. Bolt calls their fake spider silk bee silk. Well, that's all cool, but I have one big question. Shoot. Why is this a problem that needs solving? 
We'll find out after this quick break. If you're listening to this, something tells me you're a Tumble Superfan. And superfans like myself tend to like merch. So check out our Threadless shop, where you'll find awesome designs for clothes of all shapes and sizes. If you want a Science of Butts t-shirt or an Animal Mummy hoodie, just to name a few, well, we got you covered. To show off some science swag and support Tumble in the process, check out our merchandise by clicking the link in the episode description. Now, back to LifeLab. All right, so we're back. So are you going to tell me now why this is a problem that needs to be solved? Yes, thank you for waiting. As Dan sees it, the way we make materials for clothes is a huge worldwide problem. So we, on this planet today on Earth, we produce as a society over 100 billion garments per year. So these are pants, clothes, underwear, socks, things like that. Wait, a a hundred billion pieces of clothing every year? Are they counting each sock twice? A hundred billion altogether. And much of it is made with polyester, a fabric you might have heard of. It's a synthetic fiber that's actually made with oil. Wait, so it's like oil we put in our cars? Like the stuff that you burn to get to the store, that goes into our clothes? Yes, Probably the clothes you're wearing right now have some amount of polyester in them. The t-shirt I'm wearing is probably a polyester cotton blend. The polyester will be around long after I'm dead. Wait, so he's saying that the materials in the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now are going to outlive me? Yes. The current estimate is that it takes about 300 years for polyester to go away in the environment. It's essentially plastic. So throwing away your t-shirt has the same issue as throwing away your plastic bottle. Yeah, and that's a big problem because even if we give our clothes to other people after we're done wearing them, we're just not going to be able to wear the same clothes for 300 years. They're all eventually going to get thrown away. So like you can draw out the day that happens, but at some point it's going to get thrown away. And the vision at Bolt is if everything's made of biomaterials, when that product reaches the end of its lifespan, or if you lose some of it, it gets torn, a little bit of the fiber goes down the drain in the washing machine. If it's made of biomaterials, it's a material that the earth can process in a much faster time scale. Meaning these materials can biodegrade, just like the silk in a spider's web. Wow. Well, that's great. But are we all going to be only wearing spider silk clothes in the future? Because that would be a big change in my wardrobe, I, I think. No, Dan envisions different kinds of biomaterials replacing almost all the materials we use now. Another one he's working on is leather. One thing that most people don't know, if you buy a piece of leather, it's up to 40% plastic. The plastic helps preserve the leather so it could last as a car seat or a couch, for example. Well, that's insane, but how do you make leather without cows? From mushrooms, of course. Wait, what? If you go find a mushroom in your yard with a parent and you dig underneath the soil, you find all these white stringy thread-like things underneath. Those are the mycelium. They're part of the mushroom that are in the soil breaking down dead stuff. Okay, so it's like mushroom roots or something. Yes, those stringy threads are the key. We have this product, Milo, where we use those threads, the mycelium, as the fiber component that makes a really amazing leather-like material. 
Famous designers and brands are already using Milo for footwear, bags, and even yoga mats. That's crazy. And where do I get myself a mushroom leather jacket? And can it have a mushroom emblazoned on the back? <laughs> right now, products made with Milo and spider silk are very rare and pretty expensive. But Dan says that won't always be the case. So we're right at the beginning of a lot of these biomaterials coming out in the market and things that you can buy. He says the idea is that it will get cheaper to make biomaterials as they have more practice making them. Then more stuff will be made with biomaterials and eventually they'll replace the materials that are bad for the planet. That all seems great, but, you know, I'm thinking about what we learned in the last episode with Sam and Izzy. So how do we know that this is the right solution for this problem? Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot, too. Do you ever think about, like, what could go wrong with this? Oh, yeah, all the time. People have worried about genetically modified organisms escaping the lab and contaminating other environments since those very first experiments back in the 70s. Uh, this continues to sound like the start of a comic book where there's just, like, wild bacteria making sweaters. Well, Dan says that his company works hard to ensure that nothing crosses the barrier from the lab to the rest of the world. You know, we have a general principle that none of our materials are living materials when they go out the door, right? A sheet of Milo is dead, like the mycelium are no longer alive. Same with the spider silk. The organism that grew it doesn't go into the product. That's good, but I feel like there's so many other questions that we could be asking, like maybe questions we don't even know that we should ask. I know, and Dan knows that too. I think in all new technology, you can never answer those questions with 100% certainty. Only with hindsight can you come back and say, here's what we did right, here's what we did wrong. He said the best thing they can do is try to answer their own question. How do we make sure that we're constantly getting better on how we're taking care of the planet? I think that's a really excellent question. Yeah, it means you can always go back and ask more questions about whether biomaterials are the right solution. But one thing is for sure, the problem of how our clothes are made is a problem that needs solving. In the words of the great fashion guru Tim Gunn, you've got to make it work. You have to make it work. <laughs> fashion is all about creativity, but that creativity can go beyond creating the newest looks to changing its impact on our planet. It's one of very few industries that literally every person on the planet uses. Most things are used by some people, not all people. There's a handful of things that all people use. And anything, in my opinion, that all people use is by definition an important sustainability crisis. In other words, when there are over 8 billion people on Earth, how do we keep them all clothed, fed, and healthy while keeping our planet healthy at the same time? That's like definitely the hardest question of our time, I would say. In our final episode of Life Lab, we'll tackle the biggest challenge of them all. It's definitely possible that we can play a huge role in solving climate change. Yes. That's next week on Life Lab. Thanks to Dan Widmeyer. CEO of Bolt Threads. Life Lab is supported by the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, a nonprofit committed to educating the next generation in building a community dedicated to solving big challenges with engineering biology. 
with funding from the National Science Foundation under award number 2116166. Special thanks to Emily Orand and India Hook Barnard. You can find a transcript and other educational materials about this episode on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. Hear more from Dan about what happens when fashion meets science on our bonus interview podcast. It's available to Tumble patrons who pledge just a dollar or more a month on patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Our interns on this project are Elliot Hijaj and Grace Ingram. Eric Kuhn is our engineer and mixer. Sarah Robertson-Lentz edited the series and designed the episode art. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I did all the scoring and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for the final episode of Life Lab. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. This is our fifth and final episode of Life Lab, our series about how tiny life can change everything. In the last episode, we heard about a future where we wear wild new clothes made by biology. We're talking spider silk and mushroom leather. So listen to that episode if you haven't already. But fashion is only one piece of how we could make a better future on our planet. In this episode, we'll tackle the big one, climate change. And we'll find out how a bacteria from a bunny's belly could turn our worst waste into our greatest resource. Well, Marshall, we're here. We made it to the final episode of Life Lab. Yeah. And now, you know, I've taken my team of crack squirrel astronauts to Mars. We've got mushroom pants. We got everything. Yeah, we've really been on a full journey that was totally unexpected. And we're ending with a whole new look. We're like super high fashion. Indeed. How do, how do you like these mushroom leather pants? <laughs> it's better than the pants we were, the sweats we were starting this series in. <laughs> we called it podcaster chic, but really we were lying to ourselves. <laughs> but I want to bring us back for a moment to our new fashion guru, Dan Widmeyer. He said something important about sustainability or the idea of keeping Earth and its 7 billion people healthy. Most things are used by some people, not all people. There's a handful of things that all people use. And anything, in my opinion, that all people use is by definition an important sustainability crisis. Dan was talking about clothes, but there's something that we all use even more of. How's there something we use more of than clothes? We wear them every day, for the most part. Here's a clue. It's actually a ton of different things that you probably don't realize is made from the same thing. Oil. Oil? Like olive oil? No, like oil and gas. The world produces over 100 million barrels of oil every day. Some becomes gasoline to drive your car, and some becomes plastics. Polyester is a plastic. Uh, And then it goes into your clothes. Oh, right. And that's the stuff that means our clothes don't break down after we're done using them, which is why I'm wearing only mushroom leather now. (laughs) It's not just about fuel and plastics. Oil also helps make the ingredients for a surprising number of things. Like what kinds of things? Like makeup, 
crayons, candles, band-aids, and even aspirin, just to name a few in our own home. Wow, it really is everywhere. I know, it's incredible that we can make all these things, but there's a big downside. The challenge with it is, all of that starts by pumping oil out of the ground. There's pollution that comes from the whole process, from taking oil out of the ground, transporting it, to turning it into finished products like gasoline and plastic. These polluting gases stick around in our atmosphere and warm up our planet. You're talking about climate change. Yes, exactly. And then when oil goes into plastics and other products that can't be recycled, a lot of it ends up in the environment or in landfills. So like even more pollution. Exactly. But what if I told you that we could make the things we love to use with less climate change and less pollution? I'm listening. Tell me more. Good, because you'll hear more right after this short break. Okay, so I promised to tell you how we could make stuff with less climate change and less pollution. So I talked to Ryan Tappel, a synthetic biologist at a company called Lanza Tech. It's definitely possible that we can play a huge role in solving climate change, yes. What Ryan's company does is recycle carbon dioxide, one of those polluting gases, and then make it into new things. So we wouldn't need to dig up more fossil fuels to put fuel in our planes or make plastics for our toys. We can use our process to make those things. But wait, I, I don't understand. Like, how do you take the gases we don't want and turn it into a thing? Like, like a Hot Wheel or something? So here's how it goes. The recycling process starts with a kind of tiny life called C. auto. So C. auto is a bacteria. That's C.auto. Its full name is a real whopper. Clostridium autoethanogenum. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. C.auto it is. So C.auto is the name that you'll hear thrown around all over the place at, at Lanza Tech because its full name is very long and we have to say it a lot. So yeah, having a nickname is, is super helpful. So what's C.auto? Like, where does it come from and what does it do? Let's start with where it comes from. So this bacteria was actually first found in a rabbit. Like a rabbit? Like, like a bunny? Yes, one that lived in a laboratory. A lab back in 1994 was studying rabbits and what was inside like the stomach and the organs of rabbits. The lab was curious about the contents of bunny tummies. And they found that like our own stomachs, they're full of bacteria. And what these bacteria do is sometimes can help with digestion. And that's what it was doing. It was just hanging out in this rabbit. Just like hanging out in the corner being like, hey, I'm Seattle. You guys want to go get some coffee in this rabbit? <laughs> that's your bacteria voice? Why, yes. <laughs> Anyhow, the scientists who discovered it didn't think too much of Seattle. It was just there like other bacteria sitting in the bunny's belly, chowing down on the gases that built up there. All that was really noted at first was like, yep, this is what this bacteria is, and it's capable of, of eating gases as, as its food. I bet that came out as bunny farts on the other end. Like little bunny toot toots farting through the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Picking up the field mice and making them smell real bad. <laughs> 
Well, years later, Lanza Tech was on the hunt for bacteria that could eat the planet's unwanted gases. And they found Ciato. That's the beauty of synthetic biology is when you understand how these microorganisms and bacteria like Ciato work, you can then try to have it make things it would not normally make. Okay, so let me see if I've got this straight. So C. auto eats gas and then uses it to make something new that's not bunny farts. Exactly, yeah. When bacteria eat things, they naturally change them into something else. It's like when we eat things, we eat things to get energy. Yeah, okay, and we use that energy to run around, and what we don't use uh, becomes something you flush in the toilet. <laughs> right. So Lanzatech wanted to change C. Otto's waste into something that humans can use. This is starting to sound kind of like, um, I don't know, like spinning a pile of straw into gold or something. Yeah, synthetic biology is the rumpelstiltskin of this equation. And so what we can do is kind of put new pieces of DNA in the bacteria that say, okay, in addition to eating your food and also making your energy and building your cell parts, could you also make this other molecule that would then we could then use to make plastics or make jet fuel and the bacteria say sure we can do that these bacteria are they sound like kind of nice guys <laughs> well they don't actually talk <laughs> that's too bad we should do synthetic biology so they can talk <laughs> well with this ryan's describing years of hard work that went into engineering sea auto to be part of a recycling system for gas a gas recycling system? So, like, how does all that work? I'm glad you asked, because we have a song to help explain it. Synthetic biology. Programmable DNA. Rewriting the genetic code of organisms in order to solve real-world problems. What does that mean? We start with the factory emitting gas, burning coal, burning oil, smoke we'd rather not have. It's warming up the planet in a dangerous way, so we must address it now. Yeah, we gotta start today, but what can we do? We need energy too. We gotta get from here to there, but also breathe air too. And it's true, not me or you, not even with the giant crew can unglue the sticky goo that we pump out in the blue. Or can we? What if we could reprogram bacteria to fight climate change? Check it out. CO2, a greenhouse gas. It's heating up our atmosphere way too fast. But we could stop it using science, as you will see, with the process that we call synthetic biology. We can program some bacteria to make them eat gas. Turn those cells into machines that will eat the gas fast. But it gets better, cause you see, eating gas is not enough. With what's left, when they're done, we can make some good stuff. After these hungry bacteria eat the CO2 gas, what's left over can be used to make new, useful things like fuels, fabrics, and packaging. Dang! Wow, I have to say, this idea is incredible. It almost seems too good to be true. So could it really happen? Well, the technology exists now. There's a lot of other pieces to work out, but in theory, it can totally happen. Really? Because... Right now, it feels like we'd have to live in an alternate universe for this to happen. I know, right? But think back. Remember that very first experiment to cut and paste DNA into a brand new organism? The one we talked about in the first episode? That's the one. 
That was the start of synthetic biology. And it would have been so hard to imagine back then that what came from that experiment is part of our everyday lives now. And maybe we're at one of those moments now where a certain new technology begins to change our lives in ways we may not realize until much, much later. Maybe, and then we can look back to this moment and be like, I knew about this before everyone else. Yeah, so now is the time to learn more about these technologies before they revolutionize our lives. Like Ryan says. It's just asking that simple but really important question when someone says, okay, we made this, they, well, how? How did you make it? Now I want to ask the listeners, what questions do you have? We'll give you some time to think about those questions, and in a moment, we'll be back to wrap up our time in Life Lab. So even though this series is coming to an end, synthetic biology is nowhere near done. It's going to keep going, finding new problems to solve and new ways to solve them. So you're saying that we're not at the last word on synthetic biology here? Yes, exactly. We know enough to know now that synthetic biology is going to help shape the future that we're going to live in. And that's why I want to go back to our very first guest, the future is not happening to you. <laughs> like, you are part of the future. That's Christina Agapakis. The cheese lady. Yes, indeed. Christina told me there's no reason to wait for someone else to tell you what the future is going to be like. You can imagine it now. And we can be asking, like, what do we want from technology? Huh, I mean, I definitely want climate change to be solved. And I'd even considered bunny bacteria as a way to do it. I agree. But to even know that bunny bacteria could be a solution, you have to learn about it first. You have to know that it even exists. And you have to understand the problems it can solve by asking questions like, How are these problems actually being made? Who is part of addressing them? Who is making those world better? Who is benefiting and who is being harmed? And, and, and is that fair? <laughs> asking those questions will help you figure out what you think and get more curious about the science in our everyday lives. I think most people don't always think day to day about how their clothes are made um, or how their food gets made or uh, how their vitamins get made. <laughs> and so I think there's ways that biology has already shaped that world that we just don't know or think about. Maybe what I hope for the kids in this generation, like is that appreciation of how things are made like and of the living world or how the living world makes our things. Science and our lives are tied together. They can't be separated at this point. But our future lives are not decided yet. So every one of us can be a part of that. Life Lab is just the first step. Keep learning about synthetic biology, keep asking questions, and keep being thoughtful. Because you never know when you'll have the chance to make a decision that could change the future. Thanks to Dr. Ryan Tappel, Enzymology Manager at Lanza Tech. And thanks to all of our guests on the series who contributed a lot of thinking that helped shape this series. 
Dr. Christina Agapakis, Dr. Chris Prather, Dr. Adam Arkin, Dr. Sam Weiss-Evans, and Dr. Dan Widmeyer. Also thanks to Dr. Megan Palmer for speaking with us. Life Lab is supported by the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, a nonprofit committed to educating the next generation in building a community dedicated to solving big challenges with engineering biology. With funding from the National Science Foundation under award number 2116166. Special thanks to Emily Orend and India Hook Barnard. Special thanks in this episode to Cynthia Nee and Becky McElpring. You can find a transcript and other educational materials about this episode on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. Hear more from Ryan about the science behind Sea Auto on our bonus interview podcast. It's available to Tumble patrons who pledge just a dollar or more a month on patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Our interns on this project are Elliot Hajaj and Grace Ingram. Eric Kuhn is our engineer and mixer. Sarah Robertson-Lentz edited this series and designed the episode art. The special synthetic biology song you heard earlier was a collaboration with Basho Mosco of Basho and Friends. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I did all the scoring and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Hey everybody, Marshall and Elliot back here again. That's the end of our Life Lab road trip. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you learned more about synthetic biology in the process. Throughout Life Lab, I've been amazed at the types of solutions that scientists have come up with to solve some really important problems. Synthetic biology is a new frontier for science, and I hope you've been thinking of problems that you could solve with it. Would you use synthetic biology to tackle climate change like Ryan? Would you use it in space? Or do the ethics concern you? We'd love to hear from you. If you have some ideas, list them or draw them out. Send us your ideas at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want more episodes for the break, you can pledge just a dollar a month on Patreon or Spotify for a collection of bonus episodes. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is our editor and made the episode art. Eric Kuhn engineered and mixed the original episodes. Lindsay Patterson wrote the original episodes. And I'm Elliot Hajaj. I wrote the interludes and produced this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music and sound design for these episodes and all of Tumble. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that episode, and now that it's over, as always, we've got some birthday shoutouts to give to our supporters on Patreon. Antoine, happy birthday on July 1st. Mama May and Daddy Say love you very much. To Eleanor, happy birthday on July 2nd from Mom and Dad. Stay curious. Happy July 3rd birthday to Poppy with love from Mika, Hannah, Mummy, and Papa. Also, a very happy birthday to Lindsay, my co-host and life partner on July 3rd. I just thought everyone should know that it's her birthday. Taruna, happy July 4th birthday. Mama and Papa love seeing what wonders you discover in the world. And Therese, happy birthday on July 10th. Stay curious. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout out of your own like these fine folks, just support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.